Hello, and welcome to the latest Mies podcast. My name is Jamie Ingram, Senior Editor here at Mies, and I am delighted to be joined today by James Cocaine, our Managing Editor, and Yessa Al-Maliki, our Golf Analyst. It's been a whirlwind couple of weeks, with the eyes of the world firmly fixed on the humanitarian tragedy unfolding in Ukraine following Russia's invasion. In the energy sector, the ramifications are severe, and policymakers are trying to balance a desire to cut off the oil and gas export revenues that are fueling Putin's invasion, with the reality that doing so would threaten Europe's energy security. Nobody is under any illusion that Russia's oil and gas exports can be replaced in the near term. Concerns that Russian energy could be taken off the table, combined with the very real impact of self-sanctioning, as buyers have been reluctant to be seen taking Russian oil, have caused prices to soar. OPEC Plus opted last week to stick to its plan and not accelerate the unwinding of cuts, which, to be fair, is exactly what delegates were telling us what would happen. It was also insistent after the meeting that prices are being driven by geopolitical concerns rather than genuine outages. If Russian oil is taken off the table, it's going to be interesting to see if this is sufficient to change OPEC's calculations. We then saw the price of Brent hit $139 a barrel on Monday, the highest level since the financial crisis in 2008, before dropping back once again. Meanwhile, The less said about European gas prices, the better. The IEA last week released a 10-point plan to reduce Europe's reliance on Russian natural gas, which can essentially be boiled down into two primary components. Firstly, use less gas. And secondly, when you do use it, try not to buy any of this from Russia. It calculates that in this way, Europe can cut its imports of Russian gas by more than a third. Now, Qatar is the obvious potential source of additional gas, but as we discussed in last month's episode, there are significant barriers to that option. One potential source of gas that people have been asking me about of late is Iran. Uh, Yes, sir, you wrote an article in the latest issue that caught my eye, in which you note that Iran has now passed its seasonal high demand point. So, does Iran have the potential to supply Europe with gas? Uh, Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Well, not on the short term, which is, of course, important um, for the current uh, framework of affairs or context of affairs. But look at it this way. We need first to ask ourselves, where does Iran send gas? Where does it export gas? Uh, Iranian gas exports to Turkey last year were in multi-year highs. Iran even overtook uh, Azerbaijan as Turkey's second largest pipeline supply after Russia. So they sent in a record 9.75 BCM. But that is almost the full capacity of the existing 11 BCM pipeline between both countries. And this is still below the 10.22 BCM that was actually contracted. Uh, This is the same pipeline that saw outages uh, last month uh, for a few days during the recent cold wave that hit uh, Turkey. If our listeners remember, this was when uh, flights to Istanbul were cancelled. The other country is Iraq, uh, and Iranian gas exports to Iraq have come to almost a complete halt. Um, This winter, the full contractual volumes were supposed to be 50 million uh, cubic meters per day. But in reality, the flows have been typically well below that. Tehran has been prioritizing its local market over Iraq uh, because the latter has been unable to pay due to the sanctions on the financial sector of Iran itself. 
Um, Iraq has reduced Iran. Those amount to almost uh, 4 billion. Um, about 1.6 billion of that is actually gas-related. The Turks do not have these restrictions, of course, and this is, seems to be why um, volumes going to Turkey are continuing. Now, as you said, they celebrated last week ending the consumption curbs on industry. Um, Iran, in reality, is trying to grow its uh, gas production capacity, which is important if they need to send in any gas to Europe, surplus gas. Uh, but they are facing a lot of challenges. These are technical and commercial. Um, but recently they have announced that they have reached a capacity of 850 uh, million cubic meters per day. Uh, but this winter, the su supply to demand deficit was around 200 million um, cubic meters per day. And some Iranian officials are saying, well, this is going to grow over the next decade to 350. So Iran has a lot of demand internally. Um, and they are planning to boost their capacity to 1.5 billion uh, cubic meters per day, uh, according to a plan that would cost them 80 billion. Uh, and we have reported on that, I think, in great detail in January. Now, the next question that we should ask ourselves when it comes to Iranian um, exports to Europe, gas exports, is think long term. Is it plausible? It is quite plausible. Uh, if Iran signs the nuclear deal, uh, maybe even if European uh, companies, of course, if the terms are right, enter the gas development sector in Iran. Um, but of course, the, the main idea here is to, they are focusing on the South Pass. Uh, South Pass is already providing more than 70% of the production. Um, and this is where capacity from different phases is scheduled to or expected to go down uh, by 10 BCM a year starting next year. So it is difficult. Mm. So essentially, kind of we're looking at a situation where pipeline constraints mean that they can't really increase supplies to Turkey and then on onwards to Europe by much. Uh, we've also got demand on the rise in Iran, so there's not really any spare gas to supply. And then... As a supplier of gas to Iraq, they're pretty unreliable. So that might also come into play uh, if they were sending gas onwards to Europe. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you summed it up, I think, uh, <laughs> quite perfectly. <laughs> One thing that comes to mind as well is that, um, you know, we say that we, they've just passed the peak of demand. That's winter. It's the same season in which European demand also peaks. So presumably uh, that's also uh, a negative factor, given that uh, they the time when they might have extra supplies does not line up with when Europe needs it. I mean, another point to add to this, uh, the Iranians, they, they are seeing also some cross-seasonal increase in demand. So if you remember last summer, they had a lot of problems because they lost hydropower because of drought. And they also had to put these curbs on industry in terms of electricity. And the main, the main sorry, feedstock that they use for power generation is gas. So if they have more summers that require lots of gas and more winters, it is problematic to see a surplus going to Europe. And then, of course, with sanctions, that means that maintenance of a lot of this gas and power sector infrastructure is not at, uh, well, it's overdue maintenance. So we might just see them struggle to make do with what they have. Uh, James, if we turn to you now, kind of on the same topic, um, East Med gas prospects seem to have been rejuvenated by, I guess, the Abraham Accords and the start of Israeli gas flows into Europe. Um, what's the outlook for increased gas supplies to Europe from this basin? Uh, thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah. Um, so 
as you know, uh, MIS has been based for a long time in Nicosia. So Ismed's a key area we cover, um, Egypt, Israel. There's been a lot of gas discovered and a lot of talk about um, how gas output can rise and how more can be exported. Um, the, short, the short answer to your question is there's not going to be a lot of extra gas flowing to Europe anytime soon. Certainly not on the scale that Russia exports to Europe. But it's, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting topic. Now, um, Egypt, despite the hype about Israel and even Cyprus, Egypt is by far the region's biggest gas producer. And it saw output rise by 16% to a record of uh, just under 7 billion CFD for 2021. So that was great. Good news. However, our analysis is that this is as high as it's going to get, at least for the short term. And if, frankly, if I had to guess, it might be the highest um, it'll ever be, just because of the shift of wages against a lot of deep water exploration. There's no real um, pipeline at the moment of big new um, fields to come on in in Egypt. And also the country tends to have a very high decline rate for producing fields. Now, um, as, as we know, the biggest current producer is any uh, Zor field, and that had some quite serious problems last year with water infiltration. Any um, say that this is resolved, but we are somewhat skeptical of this and certainly uh, having only once briefly hit the field's 3.2 billion CFD capacity last February, it hasn't really got close since. Another new field to come on last year, Raven, which is operated by P BP, has also had problems. And certainly the uh, previous fields in uh, BP's West Nile Delta project have seen a rapid decline. So in short, I think the biggest chance Egypt's got to maintain output and therefore maintain exports, which are in, in the form of LNG for this year, is uh, increased imports from Israel. So um, Israel, as the gas outputs ramped up, this has been the big new uh, big new place that the gas can go is to Egypt in general and to Egypt's underutilized uh, LNG export terminals in particular. Certainly, um, Jamie, you mentioned the Abraham Accords, which were obviously a big deal, but also a big deal for Israel and not unrelated, to be honest, is uh, Chevron's entry in uh, 2020. Chevron took over Noble Energy, which are the big operator in, uh, which were the big operator in Israel. And Chevron now has big plans to uh, ramp up production from Israel's key Leviathan field. Um, the... This would require new export projects, either a new pipeline to uh, to Egypt, or else expansion of the current route. Now, um, I think our our EastMed editor Pete Stevenson, he's been working a lot on uh, these various options. I think he's got something planned for this week, which will uh, I don't want to uh, spoil his powder with that, so we'll see how that goes. But good what, good plug there, James. Yeah, right. Well, what what happened last week though is um, Israel started for the first time sending gas to Egypt via a second route. So just to go back a bit, um, Leviathan started up the final day of, of uh, 2019 and all exports so far from Leviathan to Egypt have been via the uh, offshore East Med gas pipeline, which going further back was a pipeline that was initially built to supply Egyptian gas to Israel. So that gives you an idea of how uh, things have shifted. Now, this route is currently operating more or less at capacity, which is about uh, uh, 400 million CFD. 
And there were plans to expand this with an extra linking pipeline within Israel. This has got delayed. So therefore, the, um, Chevron and its Israeli, Israeli partners have uh, tapped up the uh, so-called Arab gas pipeline in Jordan to pipe gas in the via Jordan to uh, Egypt. And these, these shipments started last week. And the idea is that they'll ramp up from to, to uh, raise overall Egypt, um, Israel to Egypt gas shipments to around 650 million CFDs. That's twice current volumes. So our overall take is that the best hope Egypt has of raising LNG exports is with this additional Israeli gas. Frank, frankly, my default presumption would be that these volumes will probably do no more than counteract decline in in uh, Egypt and the best guess would be that LNG exports would be level this year rather than rise. Certainly, um, any on their recent uh, Q4 call, the forecast they had for LNG exports from the terminal lay control in Egypt was that volumes would be more or less uh, steady with 2021, and that would be my expectation. So, uh, therefore, yeah, if, uh, if anyone's expecting uh, a massive uh, boost of um, LNG exports from Egypt or from Israel indirectly via Egypt, then that's probably not going to happen. Obviously, longer term, there's plans for Leviathan to ramp up, which could translate into more LNG exports from Egypt or even could translate into a FLNG, a floating LNG project uh, off Israel as well. But that's not going to be something that happens this side of 2025, I wouldn't say. So circle 2021 is the high point for Egypt gas production then and offset declines there with uh, with Israeli flows. I'd say so. Uh, we'll see what happens. Obviously, if I end up being right, then uh, we can replay <laughs> this. If not, we can just uh, bin it. But <laughs> how, how how about just over the border in uh, Cyprus? I think, you know, Cyprus has had three gas discoveries. Uh, Aphrodite was the first one. Um, it was made uh, late 2011. And um, now this is operated by Chevron. And there's been talk of developing Aphrodite as a as a tie-in with uh, um, Leviathan Phase Two development, with both fields being op- operated by Chevron. This really depends on two things. Firstly, it depends on the um, on the development option for Af- for Leviathan being a pipeline to Egypt, a new offshore pipeline to Egypt. The idea is that Aphrodite would then tie into this pipeline. You know, at around uh, 4 TCF, the size of Aphrodite doesn't really justify standalone development. You know, it's 200 and odd kilometers offshore. It's 2,000 and odd meters water depth. You know, it's it's a decent sized field, but it's not it's not um, Leviathan. It's not Zor. You know, it's uh, it's a much uh, smaller size than that. So, if um, if Leviathan gets developed via a direct pipeline to one of Egypt's two LNG terminals, then this there's a chance that one of the options anyway would be that there'd be a, a side pipeline from Aphrodite tapping into this. Um, the other thing that's a potential spanner in the works, though, is that there still isn't a unitization agreement between Cyprus and Israel. I mean, frankly, if I was advising uh, the Cypriot Energy Ministry, I'd tell them to pull out their finger on this because there's enough impediments to the development of the field already. With- this, is, this is because... 
there's quite a large part of the field that is across into Israeli waters, right? It's just about 5% by most estimates. It's only a small portion. You would think it's not a complicated agreement, you know, both from a geopolitical perspective. It's in both Israel and Cyprus's interest to have these fields developed. I mean, you know, for Israel, from a foreign, foreign policy perspective, anything that ties Israel into its neighbors and, you know, makes, you know, Egypt or Jordan or Cyprus even tied into Israel. You know, Israel's been very proactive with uh, what's called the East Med Gas Forum, which is a regional grouping. You know, obviously, the Israelis from a foreign policy perspective love being part of any regional forum where, you know, they're treated as a regular country. You know, not just Jordan and Egypt are members of this forum, the Palestinian Authority is as well. And, uh, the Cypriots love this forum because uh, Turkey's not part of it. So, you know, it's uh, not Turkey forum, I sometimes call it. But, you know, so this is a forum where uh, it's really uh, furthers the foreign policy aims of uh, Israel and Cyprus. And you would think getting a unitization agreement would be, you know, a no-brainer. I mean, what complicates it somewhat is the... uh, there's some really, I don't even know who they are, but there are there is an Israeli license on the Israeli side of Aphrodite and there's um, Ishai license, I think it's called. And there are Israeli companies that have the right to this license. They aren't firms that actually produce any oil or gas anywhere. So it seemingly is just some sort of financial investment on their behalf. But this would this is what it would take, some sort of unitization agreement involving them. Um, it seems like it's only quite recently that the... the um, the Cypriot um, Energy Ministry and Foreign Ministry has woken up to the fact that this is something that needs sorting out because, you, yeah, Chevron have been talking for a few months as if they want to, in the near term, um, move ahead with phase two development of Leviathan. And you would think if the, if the Cypriots want Aphrodite development to be part of this, they need to sort out this sooner rather than later because Chevron have options. You know, there's a direct... Um, second direct onshore pipeline between uh, Israel and Egypt that's been talked about as an option. There's FLNG as well. It's, you know, there's other development options that would leave uh, Cypriot gas out in the cold. Okay, so uh, it looks as if Egypt isn't going to be riding to Europe's rescue anytime soon. But how about uh, a little bit further along the coast with Algeria? Yeah, so we, um, um, our North Africa editor, Aydin Chalak, he did a piece this week on uh, looking at Algeria and exactly that question, whether Algeria can supply extra gas to Europe. Um, short answer is not really, no. Um, we'll end it there then. <laughs> well, a somewhat longer answer is, you know, the his piece came on the back of um, Italy and uh, Eni, you know, the big Italian energy firm Eni and the CEO Claudio Descalzi was um, in Algeria, like straight, basically a few days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He was uh, straight away on the plane to Algiers, tap, basically tapping up the uh, Algerians, tapping up Sonatrach to say, look, if, if, uh, if we're short of gas, will you give us first dibs on any extra supplies? And I think from an Italian perspective, that makes sense. You know, the... Algeria has, well, they have three export gas pipelines, two to Spain and one to uh, Italy. Obviously, 
anyone who keenly reads Mies will know one of the two ones to Spain is is pretty much out of service for the foreseeable future. It goes via Morocco and Morocco and Algeria have had a big falling out and uh, I don't see that situation getting uh, getting fixed. Anyway, the, the issue with Algeria isn't the lack or surplus of export capacity, it's gas basically. So uh, they have there's plenty of spare capacity on the pipeline to Italy. The capacity is about um, 30 BCM a year. And to give you an idea, it actually shipped a record volume last year, which was 21. So there's plenty of spare capacity. It's just we don't think... Well, Algeria did raise their gas output a lot last year. We th- they produced a record 100 BCM and their exports were at a record as well. But we don't see that going any higher this year. You know, they haven't got any new fields coming on. There's no reason to think they're not already maxing output at the moment. So for sure, in theory, if Italy needed the gas, they could supply Italy with a bit more gas. I mean, just to back a bit, Russia's Italy's biggest gas supplier at the moment, obviously. So if there was any threat to that, then Algeria could supply a bit more to Italy, but that would be gas that wouldn't be going elsewhere. So, um, you know, it, uh, Algeria has been selling some gas on the spot market, so you would imagine spot LNG sales would fall if they were supplying more to uh, more to Italy. Um, let's presume that they were, you know, they were genuine when they said to any that they'd supply any extra that any needed. I mean, it would be uh, understandable from a financial perspective if they maxed out sales on the spot market instead, but. Uh, and, you know, maybe, you know, other countries in, in Europe, you know, whether it's uh, Turkey's been a big buyer of Algerian gas, you know, Turkey could ask them for more. And who's who's to say they're going to prioritize uh, Italy over Turkey? You know, sometimes Algerian LNG goes to goes to the UK, goes elsewhere. I mean, probably going forwards, you know, the the, Alger- the LNG that they sell on the spot market obviously goes to the higher buyer, highest paying buyer, you would imagine these volumes are mostly going to go to Europe, you know, for the foreseeable future rather than um, Asia, which has been an occasional buyer. But uh, yeah, they're not going to squeeze out more gas overall. It's just a case of where where it's going. And uh, you can see Italy. I mean, I'm not surprised Italy's worried about, uh, you know, what might happen to their Russian supplies. But one would imagine as long as the Russian gas keeps flowing, there's no particular reason why they would be taking more from Algeria. It's just they're trying to line up a, a backup option, the way I see it. There we have it. Um, so turning away from gas. Uh, yes, uh, even before the latest crisis, there were growing concerns over diminishing spare capacity within the OPEC plus producer alliance. Uh, we've often flagged up Iraq as being one of the few countries within OPEC Plus that actually has substantial spare production capacity. But there are, of course, also significant political risks uh, for Iraq. Uh, now, you wrote in the last week about the oil minister there increasingly coming under political fire. So what's happening there? Well, I mean, uh, if, if you are going to speak political risk uh, in regards to Iraq, then there is a lot, uh, you know, to say. <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, let's just look at it this way from the top. Uh, this is a country that has been without a new government for the last 150 days, at least, uh, since the early parliamentary elections were conducted, held. Um, now the parliament is... In a, in a way, de facto, in full power, and it seems that 
Mr. Ihsan Ismail, who's the oil minister, has become a target. He's the oil minister and also the president of the revived uh, Iraqi National Oil Company. Uh, we have covered, you know, in much detail how INOC was uh, revived, re-established, who sits on the board and, and so on. I think we have covered that a lot. But in, in short... Uh, the whole law was supposed to come to separate between INOC and the ministry. And Mr. Ismail sits on both organizations. Also, there are a lot of integrations in terms of the staff. And, you know, we cover Iraq uh, a lot. And uh, we, you are aware of what we do most of the time. And uh, sometimes you don't even see any separation between INOC and the ministry. Um, so Mr. Ismail was in a way, uh, forced to, 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 to be removed from INOC by the parliament. Uh, of course, there are political reasons. By the end of the day, there are forces beyond the industry itself which select who the executives are, especially at this very um, delicate time when it comes to government formation. And uh, we spoke to senior sources which said that Mr. Ismail was having... Um, resistance uh, from uh, major uh, political blocs, namely the Sadrists and Taqaddim, who have been um, aligning with the Kurdistan Democratic Party. They all have more than 170 seats of the 320 seats. Now, uh, what does this mean for the industry? Mr. Ismail has portrayed himself as a supporter of IOCs. Um, his maybe grand uh, project is the 27 billion uh, mega deal with Total. There are also signings with Sinopec for Mansouria Free Gas Development. Uh, he has been also supportive of the fifth licensing round. Um, in, in other places, he has been holding talks with the Saudis on Akas or with Halliburton. Um, so he's been trying to get the IOCs to do more in the country. Big hopes um, for Chevron as well. And yeah, of course, the Nasiriya District Project, you know, uh, whatever that is. Well, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so so he's he's a, he has been placing himself and portraying himself as a supporter of IOCs, and to lose him uh, is a blow to um, many of these companies that are trying to enter the country because he has been supportive, he has been accommodating, uh, but at the same time, uh, this doesn't impact what's really happening in Iraq. So one of the senior level sources that we were talking to said, since uh, INOC and the Ministry of Oil are basically the same and the lines between them are murky, um, this is not going to impact the day-to-day -day operations. But in a way, this is going to bring in that political uncertainty that stands always as an obstacle um, to Iraq's efforts to bring in foreign investment into the country. So it's not going to be a great sign of things to come. Mm. Yeah, I believe that he was pushing INOC quite hard to partner up with uh, a lot of IOCs that he wanted to bring in. So on the one hand, they might be relieved that perhaps that won't happen, but equally they want to know will the government position change on that you know will will they be forced to partner with INOC or not is that is that going out of the window i mean one case in particular that we have been following up on uh, is uh, total energy so uh 
one of the problems that have been delaying things with Total, and sources have been telling us that Total is actually slow walking the pro the process uh, for two reasons. One, the government is a caretaker, and you cannot move all the signatures that you need through the Iraqi bureaucracy at this point because you don't want to bring in unnecessary risk in the future. Especially that there are many of the new MPs who are apparently opposed to the Total Energies deal. So this is one big problem. Uh, but the other reason for slow walking is because Mr. Ismail has been trying to push Inok to come in as a 40% partner to uh, the Total Energies deal. Uh, he, he indicated before in, in, in comments to the media that that might be part of the gas uh, capture project uh, in Ratawi. But anyway, um, this basically brings in memories of BGC, Basra Gas Company, the joint venture between Shell, Mitsubishi, and South Gas Company, and all the delays in financing that they faced because SGC was holding 51% of the joint venture and lots of financing had to come from BGC and that had to be sourced from the federal budget itself. And usually that is quite politically impacted by what MPs want. So they want more jobs, they want uh, benefits, and they don't want the extra billions to go to infrastructure projects because it's not a political priority. Well, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how this progresses and whether we, you know, we're at 150 days without a government now, will we, will we hit 200? Let's hope not. But uh, yeah, we've spoken a lot about oil, we've spoken about gas. Uh, let's turn to another source of energy, Let's turn to nuclear, and that means Abu Dhabi. Uh, I think that one of the more one of the very interesting developments um, of late has been the startup of the Baraka nuclear power plant in Abu Dhabi, and we're really starting to see the results of that coming online now. Uh, clean energy generation in Abu Dhabi uh, accounted for more than thirteen percent of total electricity generation um, for twenty twenty one. That is primarily down to nuclear power, not to, due to uh, solar power, which they are, of course, also heavily investing in. And that's primarily just from one of Baraka's four units. Uh, with the other three planned units at varying degrees of readiness, clean energy power generation is set to soar in the coming years. Now, yes, a lot of this will go to meeting rising domestic demand, but it will still greatly reduce Abu Dhabi power sector's demand for gas. That, in turn, should free up volumes for use in its expanding petrochemical sector, uh, in its ambitious blue hydrogen plans, and to loop back around to gas concerns, could free up volumes for LNG exports. Uh, for now, LNG exports are capped at a modest 5.8 million tonnes a year capacity that Adnoc LNG has at its Das Island facilities. But... ADNOC is exploring the option of establishing new LNG export facilities, possibly at the Indian Ocean terminal of Fujairah, as part of a strategy to double capacity to 12 million tonnes a year. That said, it's still going to be a multi-year project to get this up and running. And even if ADNOC opted for the swifter floating LNG technology, I think it's fair to say that we won't see any new volumes until the second half of the decade. Do you think that's fair, James? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, that's, uh, it sounds about right. I mean, um, there's quite a few big LNG projects um, around and uh, the Mauritania and Senegal, the gas that they discovered there, I think there's uh, there's a lot of gas. The, um, the best estimate is around 100, uh, 
100 uh, TCF of gas in place. And it's quite funny, the um, the changes in shift as regards the likelihood of this getting developed over the last uh, two or three years. You know, the, um, the key operator of these blocks that's made these discoveries is uh, BP, which is active off uh, Mauritania and Senegal with uh, Cosmos, a US firm as, uh, as partner. And, um, you know, there were two big uh, developments, if you like, in 2020. Firstly, uh, oil prices totally cratered with uh, COVID-19. But secondly, as well, BP's really shifted on their strategy in 2020, then again in 2021. And, um, you know, they made a thing of saying no new big uh, big projects, no, no new basins, blah, blah, blah. And um, it wasn't 100% clear. This is uh, upstream, obviously, not, not uh, solar or renewables, right? So uh, they... You know, the, it was certainly last year, it was looking much less likely that these big reserves that have been uh, discovered off uh, Mauritania and Senegal would ever be fully developed. I mean, just to, just to go back a bit, there, there's one project at the moment, uh, Tortu, it's called, which is right on the border that's getting developed. But even there, um, this, this was long talked about as a 10 million tons a year LNG project. And at the moment, it's just phase one, which is a quarter of that, 2.5 million tons a year getting developed. And then all these other big uh, big reserves that BP had discovered, it, it was like, well, these are going to have to be developed as the sort of mega projects that BP looks to have uh, moved away from. So anyway, that was the picture until very recently. Obviously, what's changed in the recent months, firstly, what changed is uh, big gas shortage in Europe. Price has gone through the roof. And secondly, obviously, that much more recently, there's uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has brought supply security issues to the fore. So it was quite interesting on their call last week on their uh, Q4 earnings call, Cosmos, um, BP's um, partner in these discoveries of Mauritania and Senegal, they were suddenly much more bullish on the prospects of uh, developing a big second LNG uh, export hub of Mauritania, they talked a lot about Europe as a key market, talked a lot about um, apparently they're hearing from companies a real desire, potential customers a real desire to diversify sources of gas. And uh, they've been bigging up as well the fact that this gas is uh, very uh, clean methane, as it were, with very low uh, CO2 content, which, uh, you know, at the at the margins makes it a greener project i mean obviously you you burn the methane it still gives off co2 right you know but there's a there's a bit of spin in this but um, but uh yeah for, for sure it's suddenly looking like a much more likely project to get developed than it was uh, a year or two ago i mean we'll see these things uh you know these things change you know i'm not pretending that everyone will be saying the same thing in a year's time but um now it's looking much more positive as regards global supply and demand, I mean, I think, so, okay, TOTU phase one, which is quite small, is uh, due to come on in Q3 next year. Then TOTU phase two, if it goes ahead, could come on in 2025. Anything else, I think we're looking at 2026, or more likely 27, 28, something like that is a potential time frame. So uh, this isn't something that's going to come to Europe's rescue in the next year or two, but we'll, uh, we'll see. Yeah, that's interesting what you say about the uh, CO2 intensity, methane intensity there for the uh, 
For the Mauritania stuff, that's also something that the partners in the in Israel are flagging up at Leviathan. I think is the relatively low carbon footprint there, um, and I think that we're also going to see. Yeah, obviously the high prices lead to um, help raise investment for these developments, but also I think we'll see something of a marketing ourselves as not Russian gas uh, to try and bring investment in as well. So everybody looking to shore up security of supply. Well, that's all that we have time for today. So thank you, James and Yesar for uh, yeah an excellent discussion. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any questions on any of the topics that we discussed today, or indeed any of the ones that you wished we had discussed today, feel free to email me on jingram at mees.com or message me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.